From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. It was quite a weekend for the Gators in Cleveland, which is not a phrase you hear very often. But that was the site of an NFL draft that saw eight former Gators taken over the course of the three days, part of an astounding showing by the SEC. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Terry and I recap all the new NFL destinations, critical series wins for both baseball and softball, and the beginning of what could be a historic NCAA tournament for men's tennis. Then, we'll trace the arc of this twisting and turning athletic year through the eyes of Duke Werner and Stacey Higgins, the leaders of the sports health department who became Florida's COVID response coordinators and were most responsible for getting the program back up and running. But first, there was no question Kyle Pitts would be the first Gator and tight end off the board. It was just a matter of how soon and where to. As Chris and I discussed to open our chat, That mystery was solved in record time. The word you kept hearing getting tossed around was unicorn. And, you know, that's that's saved for the really, really special players. And um, obviously we talked last week and, you know, we all had Kyle Pitts going right about the same place. As a Falcons fan, I would imagine you're happy. I saw I did see some criticism, people saying, you know, Julio Julio Jones is older and Matt Ryan is older and. Is, is a tight end really, uh, uh, you know, the thing that's going to change this franchise around? Well, Falcons obviously have some issues they need to address, but he, he's going to help that offense and he, because he's going to provide – and his stuff that, that we've said, he's going to provide something. I don't, I don't think the average football fan, unless you watched a lot of Florida football last year, is familiar with. Mm-hmm. And there, I don't think there's ever been a player at the position like him. I think he's going to redefine it. And I've caught myself saying that before, saying he's going to redefine the position of, of, of tight end, which seems to suggest that people are, are going to follow him and play it the same way. But you better have his measurables, his skill set, his body, those hands, the ability to go up and get the football. I mean, I, you know, obviously it was fabulous. Great, great situation for him. The highest tight end ever picked in NFL history. He can, he can hang on to that for a while. Um, Kadarius Toney. Uh, the Giants moved back. They were, in, I think, they traded out and uh, traded out of the uh, either the ninth or the eleventh position and went back to twentieth uh, and got Kadarius Tony. And but what we understand, Urban Meyer was oogling uh, Kadarius Tony uh, in that place where they got uh, the running back from Clemson. Etienne, Travis and yeah. yeah, absolutely, yeah. But uh, Big Apple, welcome to Big Apple, Kadarius Tony. Uh, he's never been to New York City. Hmm. Um, that'll be something of a of a little bit of a difference for a kid from Mobile, Alabama, but two first round draft picks for the Gators. Um, only you look at the SEC in its entirety, 65 players were taken, but by far the most uh, of any conference or record for the most uh, players taken in a conference. Um, Alabama had the most players taken. Uh, Georgia had the second most Florida had the third most, but uh, only Florida, Florida and Alabama had multiple first round picks. So, uh, Kudos to those two guys and obviously well, uh, well-deserved. Well, it's fascinating too, because think about the conversation for so many years was 
Florida not placing any skill position players on the all SEC teams. And in conjunction with that, also certainly not getting him drafted in the first round. I mean, this is it's consistent with the movement we've seen the last few years of Florida becoming this offensive juggernaut under Dan Mullen. So this is sort of the the natural progression of that. Yeah. And let's not forget what, what the situation that Kyle Trask fell into. Sure. I mean, I think everybody, excuse me, there was buzz in Tampa Bay heading into the draft that if they could stick around and, and, and land a quarterback in Kyle Trask's name, obviously came up. I remember reading a story in the Tampa Bay Times about it what an ideal situation that would be. Um, obviously he's not, he, he, he's used to sitting and waiting and he's, he's going to do some sitting and waiting behind Tom Brady, but uh, who's going to argue with sitting behind Tom Brady. And my guess is Tom Brady will be great for him. Um, that's what, that's the way he's always been with the, the guys that have been behind him. Um, and uh, Tom Brady surely understands that, uh, that, you know, he's, he's going to be around, at least one more year, maybe two. Who knows what? Who knows what's in his head? But I think Brady thinks he's going to be around for like five more years. Maybe he does. And if that's the case, I mean, Kyle Trask waited four years to play, so maybe <laughs> he maybe he'd be good with that as long as they're they're paying him. But right. um, that uh, that video of him getting that phone call was really really cool. I know there was a lot of those uh, this past weekend. Uh, one of him sitting there and saying, "Hello, yeah, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, I think I know why you're calling. I hope I know why you're calling me." I thought I just thought that was really really cool. Um, those three skill position players to start with your, your, your question, number four, overall, number 21, number 20, overall, number 62, overall, then a run a defensive player, start with Marco Wilson. Um, yeah. it's funny. Um, you heard Marco Wilson and you saw on Twitter, hit the shoe thrower, the shoe thrower, the shoe thrower. He's going to have to live with that. And, uh, we spoke with Scott last week about, you know, uh, the remarkable, uh, combine, um, numbers that Marco Wilson put up. I think number, I think that surprised a lot of probably Florida fans, uh, certainly took me aback a little bit. Certainly when talking about his vertical jump and some of the other things that he did, but, um, he addressed that in a, in a, in a conference call. I think he was asked one of the first questions he asked, uh, what'd you learn from that LSU game when you threw the shoe downfield? And we hadn't heard this from him. I don't think. Uh, do you remember seeing any interviews with him after the LSU game? No. Uh-uh. Since the LSU game? No, I don't think so. No. Yeah, I don't think so. And I, his quote was, I learned you just have to be in control of your emotions at all times and make sure you're doing the right things. But also silly mistakes like that affect not only just you, but a lot of people around you. You just have to stay away from doing things like that. And obviously that's the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you could certainly expand on that answer a lot more than he did. But I mean, he has to he has to live with that, and he's going to be asked about that a lot. And it's good that he's was that he addressed it right out of the box, because once he gets there, and he'll probably talk have to talk about it again and move on and 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 go with your NFL career in in Arizona. Evan McPherson, first kicker to go, fifth round of the Cincinnati Bengals. Good for him. They were asking him questions about kicking that bottle cap off that uh off that Gatorade bottle in the uprights that he did last time, which is still pretty amazing, right? How could that be real? Like, how could that not be doctored in any way? It's not doctored. He said it took him 30 or 40 tries until he did it. Now, if you look, if you look at it carefully, and I have since then, because uh, that bo- the bottle is taped on there. Right. You know, so he could have, I would have been impressed if he had smashed the, the thing like head on and knocked it off the goalpost. That would have, that would have been just as impressive to me. Yeah. Man, and having the bottle cap fall off, pretty cool. Sean Davis, fifth round, Indianapolis Colts. Good for him. Uh, uh, to to Daryl Slayton, a guy who last three years you kind of expected a little bit more out of him uh, than, than he gave you when he was here with Florida. Uh, but I've said this, being around the NFL as much as I had, 
they all think they can solve problems. Yeah, sure. we'll, we'll, we'll fix them. We'll fix them after he gets up here because, you know, whether they think he wasn't coached right or something's wrong with him, yeah, we'll fix it. That's, that's the attitude of the NFL, though. Stone Foresight, offensive lineman, uh, uh, went in the sixth round to the Seattle Seahawks. You know, there's your, there's your uh, eight Florida draft picks. Pretty good weekend all around for the Gators, especially when you consider uh, those guys that went in the, in the situations that they fell in. So uh, it's a good recruiting tool for Dan Mullen. Sure. Um, that's something you, those, those guys, you know, they have places down in the South end zone for where these NFL players go. Every NFL players ever picked their names are down there under their teams and what have you. And it's good conversation, good selling point. And, uh, those guys were pretty active on social media. So, uh, uh, that stuff is out there for, for other people to see. When there were a slew of Gators that were then quickly snatched up after the draft ends, that's that flurry where all the undrafted free agents come in. Uh, and one of those guys was Trey Grimes. And we talked about it last week. I think we were all sort of in disbelief at the way he was rated on the you know the NFL's board. And honestly, if you look back at what we discussed last week, almost everybody went where they were expected to go. And Grimes was considered either a late pick or an undrafted guy. And ultimately, he was not picked. He signed with, with the Philadelphia Eagles. But it just goes to show you, it, it takes a lot to get on the radar of these NFL teams and to convince them you are a fit, even if you're someone who has the tools that someone like Grimes does. Now he's got to go and try and prove that all of those teams that passed him during the draft are wrong. And there's a number of other players in that same boat as well. well it's, it's funny because I, I saw the list or the rankings of the best undrafted players. And I think Trayvon Grimes was in the top maybe 40 uh, best undraft and uh, maybe 30. Cause I, cause I think he was drafted in according to Mel Kuyper's numbers. I think he was uh, around 145th or something like 155th, something like that. And, you know, to, to have 259 players drafted that, you know, that's, that's a lot of guys being drafted over top of you. Mm-hmm. And so someone that he must've got dinged on some, some stuff, whether, whether it's speed or, or what have you. I, it's funny. I, Cause I heard um, regarding Marco Wilson, he did not have a great year, okay? No. And I was listening to some some jabber uh, during the draft on ESPN Radio, and there were some guys talking, whether it was Mike Tannenbaum or some, or some other guys uh, that were uh, assessing what was going on. They are talking about Marco Wilson was probably going in the last year considered to be a better prospect than he was, and to go that low, be, be around in the fourth round. They were saying he looked disinterested at times early in the season. Like whether that not that he, not that he wasn't trying hard, just what disinter whatever that meant, and uh, he get ding, gets dinged on being disinterested and still goes in the fourth round. I wonder what it was that got Trayvon Grimes undrafted because yeah. like that guy was a productive player, man. Ten touchdowns, uh, great catches at times, clutch catches. Uh, for and he be. And- and you know what's interesting is that if you watch the draft and saw a lot of the clips of the DBs that went in the first and second rounds, it That's was right. clips of Grimes scoring on those guys. That's right, and and in and in the Southeastern Conference to boot. So, right. um, yeah. So I, I I wouldn't be surprised at all if if Trayvon Grimes made the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know their wide receiver situation offhand, though. I do know they got Devontae Smith in the first round, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. uh, there's at least one guy who'll be playing behind. We know that. So. Yeah, Grimes has gotten a lot of the talk. Other undrafted free agents for the Gators, Donovan Steiner, uh, the safety signed with the Pittsburgh Steelers of the uh, sack to end the Mississippi State game fame. Donovan, that was his big moment. Um, And then we also saw Brett Heggie, the offensive lineman, land 
with the New York Giants. So a couple of situations here where multiple former Gators are with the same organization. And then one final, a true former, a former, former Gator, uh, Felipe Franks is signed by the Falcons. So uh, he and, and Kyle Pitts might be hooking up during camp. So that's certainly something to watch. And I know no matter how far Felipe Franks goes, Gator fans will always remember him and they'll have strong opinions on him. That thing we know for sure. So lots around the draft, and uh, we covered all of that. So with that, let's move on, Chris. Let's talk about things happening back on campus, specifically baseball, softball. Both of them kind of heading down the stretch now. Softball more so than baseball, just one weekend left for them in the regular season. But they both had really, really critical series wins this past weekend in very different circumstances. Softball going on the road, trying to beat a lower-ranked team in Missouri, while baseball was at home trying to beat a much higher ranked team in Vanderbilt, both of them managed to pull off two or three series victories, which are uh, really huge for, for both of them for different reasons. Start with baseball. And Vanderbilt, number two in the country, comes in here on a Friday night. Uh, they're facing Kumar Rocker, the, the, the son of Tracy Rocker. People, the longtime Gator fans remember him, was a, a first team All American from Auburn. Tracy, Tra- Tracy Rocker, defensive tackle at, at Auburn, who played a Played in the NFL for a few seasons. I think he won a Super Bowl in Washington, actually, as a backup. But uh, uh, his son, I mean, that guy. I don't know. If, I don't know if people saw him, but man, he's got some tree trunks, and he brings he brings some heat with that. And uh, uh, his team get his team gave him a a big lead early, and uh, they beat up on. I think they jumped on him jumped on him six nothing through two or three innings, and uh, they got out of there with the game one, but with the game one victory. But uh, credit the Gators for what they got the next day. Here comes Jack Leiter, who happens to be Al Leiter's son. So here we got more pedigree, more yeah. athletic, super athletic pedigree coming in. This guy had an ERA in 1.2-ish, and Florida torched him up, hit him up with five hits, seven runs, five earned in just four innings. They're, they're three, four, five hitters uh, uh, accounted for four homers. Uh, that's Baby and Armstrong McMullen. Um, nice second-day win, 11-8 uh, over Vanderbilt. Then they finish off the series on Sunday. You know, it, it's one they really needed to maybe not only just just for for rankings purposes and standings purposes and seedings purposes, but how about for confidence purposes? Mm-hmm. And to to take two or three from Vanderbilt um, at home. Uh, it was a great weekend for baseball. The, the crowds were tremendous and uh, really timely that it all worked out the way it did. Now now, now you go over softball. They go to Missouri having won each of the six series that they had played in, in Southeastern Conference play. They win the first game Friday night. They lose the second game Saturday, but then win the Sunday game on Hannah Adams. Jack's a three-run homer in the seventh inning to uh, put them ahead three to two, and they hold on to win that game three to two. So make it seven for seven. All right, so going into this final weekend, the home series against Texas A&M, uh, the, the Arkansas season is done. Um, they've already played their allotted uh, number of SEC games. Um, if Florida is able to sweep A&M at home, they will tie them for the uh, SEC title this year. Uh, whether that's likely or not, you know, who knows? But uh, uh, Florida does get to do this. Florida does get to do this at home. Eight out of eight in terms of SEC series wins would be really cool. But uh, Florida will have a nice seed when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the SEC tournament, and they're playing pretty well right now. Obviously, Hannah had it. Hannah Adams is having a phenomenal season. Yeah, Texas A&M is near the bottom of the league. They're 8-13 and 13 
Um, but so too is South Carolina. They're even lower. They're second to last. And Florida did drop a game at home to Carolina a couple weeks ago. So you just never know what's going to happen. But they have their own destiny in their hands if they want to claim a share of the SEC title. Uh, we'll see if they can do it. Speaking of uh, teams of destiny, uh, the men's tennis team, which uh, just barely missed out on winning that SEC championship against uh, against Tennessee, they're in the number one spot for the NCAA tournament. We've talked about their ascension uh, on previous shows. We interviewed Brian Shelton a few weeks ago. Check that out if you missed it. Uh, but this is sort of the, it's, it's the culmination of that, Chris. Now, here's the start of that journey. Again, it's great to be ranked number one, but ultimately, you got to win a national championship if you want to finish number one. And they begin that road right now. Yeah, going back to that Tennessee match, I mean, it was uh, bizarre. I think we, I'm not sure, did we talk about it last week? I forget. But I uh, I'm not sure that we did. I'm not sure yeah, that we did. Yeah, Florida fell back uh, 3 nothing in the SEC championship around to Tennessee, only to roar back and tie it at 3-3. And it was anybody's match uh, on, on, on the court um, until Tennessee clinched it in a real close match. So I imagine uh, Florida has been talking about that uh, internally. Brian Shelton has been reminding his guys, about that and the targets on the back. I tell you, Tennessee celebrated. They actually celebrated twice. Anybody who might have watched that, there was a there was a, a point in that Florida Tennessee match where people thought uh, Tennessee had won the match and they had a dog pile that ended up getting overruled. And Florida had they had to win it all over again. Um, Gators may use that as something of a motivating factor, but probably more than likely to probably just kind of kind of keep their heads screwed on straight and know that if they play their best tennis, they have a chance to win the whole thing. The men's tennis team has never won the national championship. Meanwhile, over on the women's side, I think it's six. It might be seven. I lost, I lost count. Um, they, they haven't been in contention uh, for a while, but so the regionals, the Gators were uh, rewarded, both the men and the women were rewarded a uh, home court uh, for the, for the first weekend of the regionals. It's set up a little differently uh, this year. The women will play, Siena College. The women are the 11th seed, and should they should they advance, they'll play the winner of the match between USC and Oklahoma. The men will play their opening round match on Saturday against South Alabama, and should they uh, advance uh, to Sunday's second round, they will play the survivor of the match the day before between South Florida and Duke. The survivors at all these uh, on-campus regionals. Uh, we'll then move on to the to the Sweet 16, which will be in uh, Orlando the following weekend. So it's a little different setup this year. Well, we're obviously getting late in the season, but uh, no shortage of things going on as we just discussed here today. So uh, make sure to follow Chris for updates and everything at Gators Chris on Twitter. And uh, you can find his stuff at FloridaGators.com. And we hope to get Gators Scott back from uh, the Badlands. Is that where he is this week? I know he's he's at Mount Rushmore. He's in South Dakota. I'm not sure where else he, he's venturing. For all um, we know, he's, he's at the Corn Palace right now. So, <laughs> so yes, he's up in South Dakota seeing the showing his family the wilderness. Should be an should awesome trip. We can talk about, to him about it next week. I've been up there. I think it's a fantastic uh, part of the country. I've never been. So you guys, it'll be your job to convince me I need to go. And, uh, and we'll do that next week. So thank you, Chris. And uh, we'll talk to you later. See you, Adam. Thank you. One thing everyone can agree on in regard to this athletic season is its sheer unpredictability due to COVID and the protocols that have been enacted as a result. The fact there's been a season at all has been a minor miracle, and the only reason it happened was the tireless work of the sports health staff, who had to ramp up their knowledge of epidemiology and become COVID experts overnight. 
That department and overall effort has been led by Duke Werner and Stacey Higgins, both of whom are associate athletic directors, while Duke doubles as the athletic trainer for men's basketball. We wanted to learn more about how this task force came together and how it's evolved over the course of the last year. So we began by asking them to take us back to where they were when COVID shut down the sports world, which for Duke was at the SCC tournament in Nashville. We were eating and then going to go up to my room and start uh, taping guys and get ready to go to the arena. And uh, after we ate and we were heading up the elevators, we kind of got a call or a text from our uh, operations guy saying the coach wanted to meet with everyone back in the, uh, in the meeting room where we ate. So, you know, we kind of had a little bit of an idea that this may be happening because there was some talk, but, uh, but we got in there and uh, he told us that the, uh, the SEC tournament was canceled and, and we wouldn't be playing. We just kind of flew home and, happened, and that was it. I'll piggyback on that a little bit. Um, so Duke actually called me from, from the SEC tournament and I was sitting here at my desk and um, kind of holding things down back here in Gainesville. And he gave me a heads up. He said, hey, some stuff's going down. You need to kind of alert the staff, kind of our senior staff in our sports medicine world and um, let them know that th- things are starting to shut down and we need to kind of let everybody know what's going on. And we really didn't know a lot, but I think just letting some of our senior members of our staff know that things were, this was getting serious. Um, I don't think at that point we really knew what we were headed into, but it was definitely a lot of uncertainty and just kind of telling our people, just, just hang tight. We'll let you know, we'll let you know as soon as we know. And um, you know, at that point, not only was, was Duke coming home, but our, um, our track team was warming up for the indoor national championships and they were, they were sent home. And so they're warming up, they're on the track and teams were just being pulled off the track and being sent home. And so they're all there together, warming up and one by one teams are being sent home. So, you know, I started to call them and they said, we already know we're, we're just waiting for the next, you know, the next plane home. So um, it was just a lot of uncertainty and, um, you know, the staff here all kind of looking like what's happening and, um, you know, nobody really knew, but, um, you know, like I said, Duke called me and I sort of just kind of kept our group here informed and they all came back. What was funny, Adam, on that too, is I believe that Stacy, that was on a Friday and by Monday morning, uh, Scott Strickland had called a meeting um, with all of us in it. And by Monday at lunch, we were sending all of our athletes home. So it all, it really all came down very quickly. Well, it happened, it happened so quickly. And then on the flip side of that, coming back happened so slowly, right? Because there was so much unknown about what it would even look like. How could it be done? Um, and the two of you ended up being critical to that effort. So I'm curious, at, at what point did you sort of put together or start putting together this plan to come back? And, and how did you... How did you guys educate yourselves to where you felt like you knew enough about this, wrap your head around it and, and be responsible for it? It started with the, you know, the meeting. I think the meeting Duke's talking about where we all we were all in a room. It was all the associate ADs and um, our Dr. Clugston, our team physician was in there and we were talking about shutting things down. And I think all of a sudden I realized everyone was looking at Duke and I and Dr. Clugston to kind of lead the charge. I mean, it was every, every, everybody was going, well, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? And then that happened from there on out. And I think we just kind of realized, okay, this is us. And 
it was an odd feeling, honestly, for all of us, because it, that had never happened to us before where we're in a room like that and everybody's turned into us for every question. And so it was, it was a little overwhelming, but we, we had to make sure that we surrounded ourselves with the, with the best minds and the people that knew what was going on and, you know, just made ourselves, you know, like you said, very educated, um, very quickly got up to speed and um, were ready to answer those questions in those meetings because they were nonstop. I mean, every meeting, it was Stacy and Duke, Stacy and Duke, what do you think? What do you think? And sometimes we had to say, we don't know, but, um, and we would just, you know, we, we got ourselves aligned with uh, Dr. Clucks and our team physician who sat on a lot of these task force. And then we, UF health infectious disease, and we kept going from there, but it, um, it was, it was very apparent in those first few meetings that Duke and I had better be ready to, to answer and know what was going on. You know, that's when it kind of first hit us, but when we started actually making plans for the return of return of athletes was, uh, you know, I think, you know, first, maybe first, second week of May, um, we kind of got the word that, uh, you know, some of our fall sports would be coming in that first week of June. So, you know, that month what was was crazy on, on trying just to get get our athletes back, just lifting, you know, mm-hmm. just in a weight room, which is how we started, was a monumental task at the time. Um, it's hard to think that now or even hard to think that before it happened, but just, just getting them back in the weight room, working out again was, uh, was a, re- was a really big deal. Um, and it was tough. It was actually, it was actually really hard just, just to get that done, trying to do it where we were meeting all the guidelines and the protocols. And, uh, you know, the, the crazy thing is Adam about this and it's, and it's still continuing right now is, is things changed on a weekly sure or weekly basis or every two weeks where we were changing our protocols of what we were doing. And it got to the point sometimes where we, it was really hard to keep up because of how many changes were being made. But with that being said, it was also very good because, because our league with our commissioner and the medical people that we surrounded ourselves with, we were keeping up with, 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 with the latest kind of scientific data that was coming out. We, we weren't just sticking with, okay, this is what they said in March we, we continued to evolve with, with, the, with the science that was coming out at the time of when we were making our protocol. So it, it was, uh, it was really, really, really interesting, that's for sure. If you had to say, what was the most daunting part of this challenge? When you were putting the plan together, which elements were just, did you know were going to be really, really difficult? And I guess, did, did they prove to be as difficult as you thought they would be? Just getting started was tough. Um, <laughs> it, it really was. I mean... Like Duke said, when they when they said, all right, you guys are getting the go ahead to bring your athletes back. Every facet of that was difficult. Everything from thinking about bringing them onto campus to trying to test them to testing our staff to, you know, educating their parents because, um, mm-hmm. you know, we had to make sure their parents felt good about sending them back. Um, what are what's going to happen if somebody gets sick? How, how are we going to handle, um, isolating them and feeding them and, um, things now that we do and we don't even think about were everything was overwhelming. Um, just like Duke said, the weight room piece and how are we going to get them back just in the weight room? We weren't even talking about having a practice. We were just trying to get them back in the weight room. Um, and that whole process of us sitting, I, I think about it now we were all in our masks and not only were we six feet apart, I think we stood 20 feet apart from each other. (laughs) 
walking through the weight room with our infectious disease physician going, do you think we could lift in here? And him looking at us going, no, I don't think wow. so. And, um, and that's when we made the move to move the weight room to the indoor practice facility, which was a huge move, you know, but we were all, we hadn't even really all been together. We'd all been on zoom or on the phone or whatever. And we weren't, we were afraid to even be within 20 feet of each other. And um, like I said, thinking back at that, all, all aspects of it were just overwhelming. Um, and the relief of finally getting those athletes back that very first day was, I mean, it was overwhelming. Yeah. I, I, I the first thing that I thought about, you know, I agree with Stacy, just getting them back was, 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 was quite a chore, but as we kind of evolved through the summer, I think the thing that kept kind of hitting me was how, how are we going to play any kind of sports and have games with the, with the contact tracing part, you know, like we knew, we didn't know at the time exactly how it was being spread or where it was being spread, or we just knew that it could come from anywhere basically. And with knowing that at the time and then knowing the contact tracing part of, of, of guys being out for 14 days for a quarantine and 10 days for an isolation and seeing how, seeing how guys were all together. I, I think that part to me was, was, uh, it was really hard for me to get through my head how we were ever going to play, you know, actually participate in a practice and, and compete in a, in a game with not knowing really anything. We all got to remember now, we didn't know anything of what was right. going on. You know, basically the whole, the whole world shut down because of an NBA player tested positive. That's, that's what happened. You know, mm-hmm. the guy, guy test positive, I think on a Thursday, Thursday night, most basketball terms were set that shut down Friday. And as Stacy said, the track and other sports were shut down and then everything was shut down after that. And just going into this with no knowledge of anything uh, was extremely, uh, I don't even know the word, <laughs> just over, I guess, overwhelming, just trying, just trying to wrap our arms around it was, was really hard. Do you, do you remember Duke when we were talking about just bringing the athletes back to do their physicals and yeah. you, we were, we had a, probably a two hour discussion about just how are we going to get like their vitals and do their medical histories and all this stuff. And, and you said, how are we ever going to play a game? We can't even do a physical. Like, we, <laughs> so, but those are just some of the things that were like, we couldn't even like, how are we going to get heights and weights? And you're like, we're, we're how are we going to play basketball? Like, how are we going to play football? How are we going to, you know, play lacrosse, whatever. It was just, it's just so overwhelming the the things that we, you know, now I think about it and it just seems silly because we just didn't know what we didn't know um, at the time. But you, you mentioned moving the weight room to the indoor practice facility as being, you know, one way that you solved a problem in a creative way. What were some other solutions you had to come up with, even if it was stuff on the fly once you got once you got started that you had to really adapt and, and were different from what you initially thought you'd have to do? I'll be honest with you. I, I had no idea what we were going to do. Um, and I, I didn't have any preconceived thoughts of how we were going to do things. It was really just a, it was a week to week. What are the new protocols coming from our, from our task force in the league? What um, our infectious disease, you know, docs telling us that we should be doing. So it was, it was a week to week thing, but I mean, our, our, our daily routines of our teams here were completely not even close to being normal. Um, you know, everyone's heard, you know, that we weren't using locker rooms, mm-hmm. um, you know, film rooms we, we weren't using. We were, you know, ev- everything they possibly were used to doing what we didn't do other than other than just the actual practice was probably 
pretty normal, but everything that went around that was different. And I think uh, not only Stacy and I, but our strength coaches and, and our operation people and, and, and our staff of athletic trainers, it was just a continual uh, a think tank of what's best. <laughs> <laughs> and we all helped each other out and, and some things worked, some things didn't work. And uh, I felt like it was a really good, uh, good example of a lot of different groups coming together to kind of make it all work. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that people, they worked within the system and the confines of what we had and they just, they, they got it done. And it, like Duke said, it was a lot of departments working together. Um, you know, we've, a lot of people have done things outside. They've watched film in different areas. They've, you know, they've used their gyms. They've, you know, soccer used the performing arts building over by their soccer practice field. They've, they've all been creative in their own ways. And, um, but it's been a lot of different departments working together and said, okay, well, we can't do this. What can we do? Um, and our athletes have adapted and adjusted and it has, yes, definitely not been normal and it is still not normal. Um, but we're, we're competing, we're practicing, we're playing. And, uh, you know, I'd say that's a win. And to, uh, to what you're just saying about the athletes and the buy-in, how difficult was that portion? Cause I think that's probably, to me, that's probably the, the toughest thing is getting, you know, 18 to 22 year olds to understand, hey, you guys have to live a different lifestyle right now. And Duke, I've, I've heard you talk about this as well, kind of the sacrifices from the student athletes that outsiders probably wouldn't think about in terms of what they have to lose in the camaraderie and the team building that, that's such an important part of what they would normally do. You know, I, I, I think they did an unbelievable job. I, I, you know, and, and I've said it um, before and, I, and I'm going to continue to say it, what what they had to deal with this year because it was so different. You know, that that's the thing that I, I think people don't maybe don't quite understand is it, it just wasn't anywhere close to being a normal season. And if you talk to anyone in athletics, I think they'll tell you the importance of a locker room and the culture of a, of a sport that's built within a locker room. And our teams didn't have locker rooms. You know, they, you know, for the most part, you know, maybe on game day we used them, but it, it just wasn't the case this year with with what they had to uh, had to had to work with. Um, but even, you know, I'm just a big believer of the college experience in general uh, of guys and, and gals leaving home and they're 18 to 22 years old and they start trying to come from maybe a maybe a, a kid to trying to get in to mature and, and become a a man or a woman, and this year they didn't have the opportunity to experience, to really experience anything because they were kind of just in their dorms or their apartments. And the social aspect of it wasn't, you know, there was none. Uh, the social aspect of being a part of a team really wasn't there because we really just practiced and then they didn't have a locker room to hang out in, you know, after the game or after practice. So it, it was a hard, hard year for them, but, you know, I, I think they, they, they all did a phenomenal job across the board with all of our teams and, and our athletes on how they handled it. I really, I really, to be honest with you, I gained a lot of respect for them on, on how, they, how they went about their business. Doesn't mean every day was easy by no means, but they, they really did a good, they did a good job. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that um, you can see it in their faces. I mean, I, you know, even in our athletic training facilities, we're not quite as social as a locker room, but um, 
it is a social place in here. People are coming in to get treatment and get ready for practice. And there's usually a lot of conversation and a lot of, um, especially in the facility that I work in, a lot of teams in here, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of Olympic sports and there's um, a lot of camaraderie and talking and just, you know, people kind of mingling with each other. And that just doesn't happen right now. I mean, it's very clinical. You come in, you get done what you need to get done and you go on to practice and go on with what you need to do. And that we just don't have that right now. Um, so there's definitely something lost there, um, from the social side of things. And they have done what they had to do to compete because they love to compete in their sports and be a part of what's going, you know, be a part of athletics, but there's definitely a part missing. Um, and like I said, you can, you can see that wear on them. We have, currently eight sports still competing and they have been at this the longest because they're still going right now. Um, and I think honestly for them, it's getting harder um, because there are things that are starting like restrictions are starting to loosen up and they see other people doing things and they still have to follow all the protocols and stay really on point with what they're doing. And I can, I just, I can see the, that kind of, it's starting, it's definitely starting to wear on them. Um, and so I've just, you know, I think we're doing the best we can to encourage them. You know, you guys have done this all year, hang in there. You're almost there. I mean, it's almost championship season for a lot of, for these last eight teams and they've got to stay vigilant. And I, I do respect what they've done here. Um, and, uh, they, they really have bought in and, um, I, you know, it's, it's been a real tough year for all of them. Given the, the responsibilities that both of you have had through all this, uh, it's been your job to try and anticipate every challenge and know every hurdle, but I can't imagine the number of them that have come up that, that were unexpected. So I'm, I'm wondering for each of you, if there's a particular aspect of this now that we're almost to the, the end of this athletic season that has truly surprised you or caught you off guard relative to what you expected. I mean, I think I'm going with that. I, I spent the majority of the summer thinking there's no way we're going to play. <laughs> I was trying to be optimistic, but I knew just enough that made me <laughs> that mm. not as optimistic as others. I think, uh, I think Stacy probably feels that same way with that. It's hard. I don't know that any one thing totally surprised me or caught me off guard or it, it was just more kind of learning to ride, ride this roller coaster that we rode the whole year and, and kind of dig yourself out of the, the down parts. Um, there, there were definitely times where I, I yeah, I, I didn't know if we were going to make it out of it. Um, there, there were some low points for sure. Um, yeah, there was, there was, are we actually going to get, get the ship out, you know, get, like get it out, get it going, get it up and running. Um, and then there were times where we would get going and, and things would, we'd have, you know, a huge outbreak or something would happen. Um, and I would think there's no way we're going to get shut down. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was definitely riding the roller coaster, kind of pulling ourselves out of it. And, um, you know, the good thing about Duke and I, we've worked together so long, it's, it kind of worked out well. I think when he was at a low point, I, I was okay. And when I was at a low point, he was okay. And so we kind of balanced <laughs> each other out. So that's a, that's a positive for sure of having kind of a partnership like that. Um, but it's, um, it definitely was a roller coaster of a year, um, but I don't think any one thing totally caught me off guard. I think that there were some things we knew were, that they were going to happen. I mean, you know, you're dealing with college students. They behaved, you know, they 
they had things happen that we thought college students would have happen. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if there was any one thing that really got me. You know, Adam, the, the, the maybe something and Stacy can help me with this because she has kept track of all our numbers throughout the year. This is a great roller coaster story is that we kind of got back in, in June and I think we had like, for whatever reasons, like I think we had 22 positives in June of athletes. And then it seems to me that July was kind of the same, but then in August, we only had one or two hmm. and we're thinking, man, maybe <laughs> at that we time, did. <laughs> we're doing some things. Yeah. We're doing things right. You know, we've got this thing figured out. And then we got absolutely smashed in September, smashed. Mm -hmm. Like everything that we were thinking just kind of went out the window there. And, but that's kind of how, how the year went with ebbs and flows with, with dealing with this, that right when you kind of think maybe we're, we're doing really well, we, it, we would just get an outbreak or a, a team would have to be shut down or, or what have you. But that's kind of how it's kind of gone for the last year. Stacey, you mentioned some of the restrictions being lifted around the athletes and they're seeing things in their environment that maybe aren't reflected in their day to day. Where where are things today relative to where they were? Have protocols changed significantly? Is it pretty much been status quo all year? Like how has it evolved from where it started to where it is now? Yeah, that's um that's that's a good question. Um uh, so I think, you know, when we first came back, we were so, it's not that we were super conservative, but we, you know, we were just by the book and, um, you know, and we're still doing all those things, the, the masking, the wash your hands, maintain distancing, those kind of things. But now you're starting as our athletes travel to different venues, especially for away competitions. I don't know if you, I mean, if you watch, I'm just going to use baseball as an example, you watch a baseball game on TV you will see fans in the stands that are not distanced, um, unmasked and very rowdy and uh, yelling and, you know, they're being fans. Uh, but that's not what our athletes see in our stadiums where, right. and so th that could send a mixed message or different States have different masking mandates. And so I think that that's, that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier with that. But as far as day to day for our athletes, you know, there's still the masking indoors is still required for them um, outside when they're not competing they're they're still wearing them right now on campus because that campus that that has not changed yet. Um, and so I know the CDC recently came out with some changes outside, but that that's not effective on campus just yet. So I think that all in all, there's not a lot that has really changed. We are not the one thing that I laugh about because when we first came back, um, Duke was checking in his athletes and taking temperatures every day and um, doing symptom checks. And he was back there and he'd be washing all the basketballs all the time. And we don't, <laughs> we, we don't spend a lot of time washing basketballs anymore. Um, but I would call him on the phone to check in and he'd be back there washing basketballs. And, um, you know, and I, but we, that's something we don't really do. We don't wash the basketballs and the footballs and the volleyballs like we were in the beginning. Um, you know, our poor managers in the beginning, they were trying to keep up with football, um, you know, with the quarterbacks trying to wash those footballs as fast as they could and spray them off and mm. get them back on the court. We don't, we're not doing that. So we know that the surface transmission is not what we thought it was. I mean, we were absolutely spraying down every single surface anyone touched anywhere. And we're not doing that anymore. 
I was I was Lysoling my bananas when I got them from yeah. uh, you know I had the the Instacart bags like let's you know, let's wipe down the bag yeah I think I think we were all doing that yeah yeah so we we were not cleaning our um, equipment like we were as far as the um, the actual like the the basketballs volleyballs and soccer balls all that stuff but um, the masking still the same washing the hands social distancing all of that but. Um, we're going to start seeing more and more of our athletes become vaccinated. So that'll help with the testing piece. So they won't have to um, do the surveillance testing. So that's a nice plus for them and the contact tracing um, that'll exempt them from contact tracing. So we're really trying to um, get our athletes into um, the vaccination part of it right now. So that's a big push for us. Um, and actually that was a nice, that, that day was huge when we were able to start putting our athletes through the vaccination process. Um, that was, a, I just felt a huge weight lift off of me um, that day. It was a huge win for us. I think, I, I feel like we had a tremendous amount of support from our administration, namely uh, Scott Strickland and Linda Teeler, because a, a, a lot of this stuff that we were doing through the year, because we were completely taking people out of their routines it wasn't always what maybe our coaches wanted. Um, and it's not that they didn't want to, I'm not saying they didn't want to keep them safe and that, and that that's not it. And it was the safety was really important to our coaches, but you're taking these teams and programs completely out of the rhythm and day to day uh, kind of strategy of, of, of their program for the year. And, you know, I, I know from my standpoint that, uh, we wouldn't be able to do, Stacy and I wouldn't have been able to do the job that we did without the support from Scott and Linda, just continually through the year on, uh, I don't know how many head coaches calls we had, Zooms, but they, they basically said, hey, whatever Stacy and Duke think we need to do, that's what we're going to do. From day one, they were completely supportive uh, of our efforts and our staff's efforts of, of keeping our athletes safe. So, uh, I did want to throw that out there because if that wasn't the case, it would have even been harder than it was for us. I think we said it earlier, but a lot of other departments and our staff really chipped in and helped us out in the UAA. And, um, you know, I think Duke and I get a lot of credit for things, but there were a lot of people behind the scenes helping us um, kind of pull all this off. So, you know, it, it really did take a team effort. Final question for both of you and and. For people listening to this conversation, they may just assume you guys are both epidemiologists. You are not. You, your background is in athletic training. Uh, as, as we look to the future here and what's next, how much are you looking forward to getting back to what you do best and, and what you want to be doing instead of this unfortunate weight that, that you've had to bear? I'll be honest with you. I, it, it's it's starting to maybe get improve a little bit. Like we're, we're kind of starting to get there and it is it – is, uh, Really, really nice. <laughs> we're, we're, we are not there, as Stacy said, but I, I do feel like we're maybe moving in the right direction. And um, I have told people this year, Adam, that this was the first year for me that I felt like when I came to work, it was really work. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of us in athletics will say that, that when we come in every day, it's, it's not like we're going in and, and, we're going to work. We're going in somewhere where we love what we do and we love the people around us. This year for me, uh, just personally, it, it, it was uh, it was much different and it became much more of a job. I know that sounds probably doesn't come across great, but <laughs> you know, you know what? Like, I think yeah. I hope people understand what I mean. Like it, it was it felt like a real hard job this year. And uh, I can't wait till we're, we're out of it and we get to move forward and, and get back to some normalcy. Yeah, I agree. I am. Uh, 
I'm looking forward to going back to what I did before. And I actually, the other day was thinking about what did I used to do before this? Um, <laughs> because it does, it does kind of take over your whole day. Um, now I start looking at COVID testing numbers and vaccination numbers and, you know, what teams got to test on what day. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my morning if I don't have to do that anymore? So, right. um, you know, I may find I have extra time. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it would be nice to um, go back to the things that the things I was trained to do, the things I love to do. Um, and like, do so the things I actually enjoy doing, um, <laughs> it'll be nice to laugh in the office a little bit more and, um, you know, enjoy, enjoy what we do. So, um, but yeah, it's, I've learned a lot definitely. Um, but I, I'll, I'll be ready to go back for sure. Mm. Well, listen, you guys have done an unbelievable job uh, getting the Gators through an unprecedented and very difficult season. So I know that Gator Nation is is going to be happy to hear from you to know more about what, in, what went into this and also uh, share their gratitude as well. So thanks to both of you for your time today and for all the work that you've done to, to keep the Gators safe and competing. Thanks, Adam. We appreciate you having us on. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.